What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Mike Dolce Show. As promised, special guest of the day, Mr. Rob Wolf. Now, Rob is a former research biochemist and the New York Times bestselling author of The Paleo Solution, his perennial number one ranked podcast, The Podcast or The the Paleo Solution, is. For years, it's been a go-to source for health and fitness-minded people to get real, real information, current information, not just textbook information or bro science. Um, Rob is also, and I think uh, one of the coolest aspects, well... Kind of, but street cred. He's a former California state powerlifting champion with a 565 squat, 345 bench, and a 565 deadlift. Those are legit numbers right there. And he was 6 0 as an amateur kickboxer. He coaches athletes at the highest levels, and not just coaches athletes, but coaches the coaches of athletes at the highest levels in sports and performance. This whole show could just be reading Rob's bio. He is a black belt in everything, ladies and gentlemen. Rob Wolf, what's up, brother? Not jujitsu. I, I am but a, a blue belt knocking on purple belt in jujitsu. <laughs> but you son of a bitch, you got the black belt in your mind and you'll get there because of that type of brain and, and, and essence you have about you. I mean, that's oh, one of the hardest paths. Of course, of course. Yeah, huge honor to be on the show, man. Uh, we we were chatting a good bit before we started rolling, and I, I just thoroughly enjoy your your show, and it's a huge honor to be here. Thanks. Oh, man, thank We're very happy to have you on. You, you class up this joint, brother. Thank you. Thank you. I don't do that very many places, so thank you. <laughs> I'm usually the one that brings down property values, so I, nice. I, I'm honored to be on the other side of that fence. <laughs> That's awesome. So, I mean, lots of reasons to have you on the show. We're going to drill down. One, one of which, which is awesome, is your new book just came out, Wire to Eat. It's an immediate um, bestseller, number one bestseller. Everybody's talking about it already. So give us a quick overview. What can people expect in Wired to Eat? Oh, man. You know, it's uh, it, it's really trying to unpack this whole ancestral health story from a very different perspective than the whole like loincloth wearing caveman, which is what, what paleo has largely been and, uh, you know, what the paleo solution was to some degree. And it's trying. Is to that what you mean by you? You bring the property value down. Is that you on your front lawn loincloth at all? That is only some of the downside of being anywhere near me, which is why I live out on a little permaculture farm now and my neighbors are far, far away. So So cool. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, I didn't want to hijack, but. No, 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 no. Hijack away. Hijack (laughs) away. Um, So, you know what? So, you know, backing up a little bit about six years ago, we moved to Reno, Nevada, and we were in town maybe three weeks. And I got a phone call from a guy who identified himself as Greeny and he said, hey, I'm part of a medical clinic. You need to come down and check out what we have going on here. And Greeny ended up being a retired but formerly famous orthopedic surgeon named Dr. Jim Greenwald. And he had headed up a, a, a risk assessment program where they worked with the Reno Police, Reno Fire Department, found 35 people at high risk for type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular disease, got them on kind of a lowish carb paleo diet, modified their sleep and exercise as best they could. Changed off the, based off the changes in their blood work 
and their health risk assessment parameters. It's estimated the pilot study alone saved the city of Reno $22 million with a 33 to 1 return on investment. So this was huge, like just really profound stuff. And I've been working the last five plus years to try to take this this basic idea and scale it up and take it out to the masses. And not surprisingly, healthcare has proven to be a much tougher nut to crack than what I initially thought. Like it's been, you know, a protracted land battle but we, we've had some decent success. But what this this experience told me, I'm like, man, there's really something powerful to this whole template. But, you know, there's some like kind of marketing and imaging issues around the whole paleo shtick. It's hard to get people to even read the literature on it. And also um, it, it's tough because when you try to give people simple guidelines to follow, they inevitably turn these things into to stone tablets and religious doctrine. And then, you know, it. it uh, You've got these people that maybe have benefited from eating a particular way and they become zealots. And so there were just a lot of challenges around this. But also in the back of my head, I'm like, okay, this is still, you know, almost like an operating system. It's a really powerful methodology. So how do we, you know, what's a different way of approaching this whole thing and this neuroregulation of appetite, the way that our appetite is turned on or off in either a beneficial or a pathological way kind of got on my radar from a paper that I read about four years ago talking about brain evolution and the the omnivore's real dilemma. And it really made this fascinating case. It it made the case that if you live in a modern world of engineered foods and you find it difficult to decouple from that, if you find it difficult to not eat all of the sea salt and vinegar potato chips in your your pantry, you shouldn't be surprised. What if they're organic? Then you eat two bags of them. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Okay, good. Good. And, uh, and, and, you know, it was interesting because although it was a really kind of, you know, long in the tooth scientific paper, it really was kind of uh, engaging at an emotional level. Like wow. it was making the point that you really shouldn't, you know, there is no room for guilt or, or you know, kind of self-loathing if you find navigating the modern world of, of kind of engineered junk food, a, a challenge. And it was really interesting. I was like, man, this is a fascinating way of looking at this stuff. And then about a year ago, or no, I guess, I guess two years ago now, there was a paper that came out of the Weizmann Institute in Israel. And what they did is they put a continuous blood glucose monitor on 800 people. And this thing basically samples the blood glucose once a minute, every minute for the duration of the, the, the test. And they did a gut microbiome analysis on these people looking at the different gut microbes they have. They did a full genetic test. And then they started feeding these people different meals. And what they found was that the blood glucose response in these folks was just all over the map. Like one person would eat white rice and they had beautiful blood glucose response. Blood sugar barely went up. It went back down to normal levels. Other people had nearly diabetic blood sugar response. And then they would have like a hypoglycemic crash at the end of this. And the takeaway from this whole thing was just that based off your genetics and some epigenetic features like your gut microbiome and stress and activity level, um, uh, circadian rhythm, like when you when you sleep, how much you sleep, all these things dramatically influence how we respond to our food and particularly the, the types and amounts of carbohydrate that we eat. So, I, I, you know, with all this stuff put together, I, I had this, you know, different way of talking about this ancestral health model through the lens of the neuroregulation of appetite, like what tells us when we've eaten enough and when we need to eat more and what situations we can get ourselves into where we overeat. 
And then I had a way of, uh, uh, you know, addressing kind of the emotional issues, but then also moving beyond just a one size fits all recommendation. We have a methodology now for really getting granular about, you know, how do people do best on, on the particular, you know, food that they're eating. Like for myself, I'm just kind of a doughy Northern European guy and, and, you know, about 7,550 grams of carbs on, on my harder jujitsu days. I can remain lean. I have enough uh, uh, gas in the tank to do what I need to do rolling. Um, so I, you know, I feel pretty good there. Whereas a lot of other people do much better at higher levels of carbohydrate, but for me, it, it's just a bit too much. Yeah, and this is, and I think this is your intent. And please, you know, expand that everyone has their own unique formula. And I think you and I very widely agree on the criteria is, is flexible and should be molded to the individual, the individual physiology. And as, as you're so data-driven, which you know, enhances your expertise and opinion on the real-world application of what the fuck do I eat right now then, doc? Right. You know, and, and it, right. you, you draw that. So with you, you found, you're very intuitive. You, I'm sure you've, you, I know you've done a ton of actual, you know, hard research on your on yourself, but also you're going <laughs> to fucking the jujitsu room is probably the, you know, the most vile Petri dish of all. Oh man, you know, it, it is. And, you know, like I, if I'm not doing hard training, I feel really good eating a really low carb ketogenic diet. Like I have great, cognition, my energy levels are really good. And I get the absolute dog piss beat out of me doing jujitsu. And now I know there are a few people out there that seem to have been able to skin that cat. I can't do it, but I I need, you know, 7,550 grams of carbs to be able to make the the jujitsu training work. And I'm doing old, old guy jujitsu. I'm not, I'm not like a Mendez brother by any any means. Like it's not a super attribute driven game or, or anything like that. But even that said, it's still glycolytic enough that for me, I need this kind of middle ground. And so I've found a spot where my cognition is still good and I still have really good energy level between meals. But you know, it was fascinating when I did eat a ketogenic diet, I could go a day without eating and I felt great. But if I did anything like CrossFit, uh, uh, you know, a Thai boxing session, jujitsu. I just, I personally couldn't, couldn't fuel that. And so that's, that's the, you know, to your point. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a, I so wish that a one size fits all deal would work because we could just wash our hands of all this and like go have a coconut farm and be done. But there's kind of a, a reality that, you know, we can start with some great big picture generalized concepts and then, you know, based off the individual, we're going to need to ask more questions and ask the person to ask a lot of questions about how they look, how they feel, how they perform. And those and the answers they get out of that are going to direct where they go with their process. Yeah. And you had mentioned keto and I've been vocal in a, a misconstrued way about keto isn't it's not the way and it's not the way in the dogmatic um, embrace it's received from the public where everyone, quote, says they've they've gone keto thinks they're going keto and they're eating bacon and pork rinds and going in and out burger and taking the bun off and eating the burger and the cheese saying hey you know I'm keto bro no that's you're not keto that's not keto that's not ideal for you you're actually detracting from health though you might lose weight 
for a short period of time, the negative effects are, are just building and swelling. So when you talk about keto, can you break down what your definition of is of a practical ketogenic lifestyle? And then we can f- talk further into, are you actually achieving the state of ketosis? Or as most people don't understand, there are low-carb diets and very low-carb diets, mm-hmm. and then there's the mm-hmm. act of forcing your body into ketosis and maintaining a lifestyle to continue that. Can you simplify this a little bit and just share what the difference is? Oh, man, I think you just explained it better than I'm going to, <laughs> so I'll take, a, I'll take a stab at it. Oh, then you support know, me because this is my battle. Uh, 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 you know, so you make a really good point that there's a it, – it's a spectrum. There's a, a spectrum here, and so you have – kind of a standard mixed diet, maybe like zone ratios, 40, 30, 30. And then you can get into kind of low carb land where the carbohydrate as a percentage of calories is maybe like 20, 25%. And then getting into very low carb diets, knocking on the door to keep ketogenic diets is usually 10% of calories or, or less per day. And again, this will, will vary a lot. Like we have seen some folks in the, the really ultra endurance scene seem to do really well with a fat adapted, uh, program, but these, these folks are mainly hitting that aerobic pathway. And it, it seems like that, that kind of fat adaptation causes some great, uh, fuel partitioning and they tend to become very thrifty and sparing their glycogen. And so for those types of athletes, like there legitimately seems to be some, some potential benefit there, um, for the more glycolytic based athlete, I think it's really challenging. As an aside to that, do you feel or are you familiar with any research that shows muscle fiber type has a direct impact on the the fueling system, but specifically the fueling systems for that specific sport? If you're a Diaz brother running a ultra marathon or if you're a Diaz brother in a three round fight with a guy like Khabib, somebody who's going to explosively wrestle you and isometrically contract you. Right. Right. So you now know, I, go ahead. I'm sorry. I haven't seen much on that. You know, I mean, there's definitely and, you know, let, let's also face some reality. Like you have the the Kenyans that eat a 60 or 70 percent carbohydrate diet and still kick everybody's ass. Those for bastards. The part. So, I mean, you know, so I we mean, should move to Kenya uh, instead of Nicaragua. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so, I mean, the, again, even with it, you know, even though there are some folks that seem to be doing some super cool stuff on that, that fat fueled, fat adapted uh, process, there are exceptions to it. So, you know, it's I, I don't want to present it by any means as as like a, a universal. There definitely does seem to be some uh, strong predilections along that fiber type story. You know, like if you're more of that. uh type 2A fiber, then you can be both strong, but also have good endurance. If you're more of that type 2B or 2X fiber, that's more that, that sprint or, or Olympic lifter type of, of, uh, you know, just fiber type. And then you start getting into all these other wacky, uh, stories of what type of enzyme systems do you have? What are your lever lengths? Like, are you, mm-hmm. are you super long legged, huge hands, huge feet, like Michael Phelps, and you're just born to be a swimmer? You know, I mean, this is when people become really elite world champions, particularly in, you know, MMA is interesting because you can put so many different combinations together that you could have a relatively slow, slow twitch person do well in that scene, or you could have a very fast twitch person do well in that scene. But things like swimming, running, uh, uh, you know, cycling, you have some really specific kind of 
physiognomy that, that goes into what's going to make it work. And when you get fiber type plus enzyme systems plus, you know, lever arms, and if all those things finish out favorably, then you're world champion. If not, then you're a has-been. So, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, to, to, to dig into, um, you know, that, that well-constructed ketogenic diet, you, you definitely – should still be getting the bulk of the food you consume should be nutrient dense, uh, plant material, you know, all kinds of multicolored vegetables, a modicum of fruit from like, uh, uh, berries, you get lots of nuts and seeds so that you, uh, you prop up your magnesium and potassium intake. So, you know, like anything, you know, you can have folks that have a really nicely constructed vegan approach, or they can eat these like kind of vegan hockey puck things that you can get out of the, you know, the local co-op that, you know, they're, they're really not all that great on food quality. And similarly, the, the ketogenic diet can be um, really masterfully put together and can be quite nutrient dense or it can be a disaster. Yeah. And unfortunately, a lot of the disasters have, have you know, wandered their way into our offices for some assistance, right. which prompts me to be a little more vocal than maybe not about the difference in a true properly done ketogenic diet or some form of carbohydrate control or carbohydrate selection. Um, we always talk, are you, well, what are we fueling for? What are we recovering exactly. from and what are we fueling for? And then we could make informed decisions on what we consume. And that's regardless of label, whether it's, it's a keto or a paleo or an Atkins or a body opus, which I'm sure you remember, or a, you know, Mm -hmm. metabolic diet or whatever other kind of labels out there. Well, let's, I love your term granular. Let's get granular right now. And what are we trying to accomplish? What are we fueling for? What are we deficient in? What does our body need and how, you know, what, what's our mode of operation? Right. And you know, I, I think that because of your expertise and background, Probably a lot of the folks going through your front door are leaning towards these explosive power endurance athletics. And if there was a, a flavor of athlete that was poorly suited for low carb or ketogenic, it's them. Like yeah. those are not the people that are going to find some immediate success with this. These, these really long endurance athletes, like, and, and maybe, you know, even there, there's a lot of ways to cut it. Maybe they do a period, a, a periodized block of training where they, uh, they do high volume, low intensity, and they're, they're doing it fat adapted, you know, so relatively low carbohydrates to try to goose that stuff. And then they shift gears and they shift into a, a more power endurance deal where they use more carbs. So there's a zillion ways to, to slice and dice all that stuff. But I, I, you know, um, man, you would be hard pressed to find someone who wasn't a bigger fan of ketogenic diets than I am. And I broke myself, broke many, many people trying to make it work in, in arenas like CrossFit and MMA and jujitsu. And again, there may be people out there that are able to crack this nut. I've just found it very, very difficult and a really, um, poor, risk reward kind of scenario. You know, when, when you damage an athlete metabolically suppressing their thyroid, causing some adrenal dysfunction or like HPTA axis dysregulation, that can take years to un, unwind all that stuff. So, you know, instead just focusing more on some tried and true methods for those athletes, focusing on nutrient density, uh, dialing in their sleep, getting them doing some float tanks once a week so that we get their allostatic load down. Like those are the things that are really going to provide some remarkable benefit for folks. Yeah, absolutely. And that, it, that goes back to pushing away from the labels and mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. being mindful of consumption. And this is where a lot of people, I know you see it in your practice, a lot of people hurt themselves because they're trying to dogmatically follow a, a, a label or a branded procedure that maybe it works for 80% of the population perfectly, probably not. Maybe you fall into that 20%. It doesn't work for it all. Or maybe you're just carrying it out so poorly, it, it's it's not even right. a shadow of what it's meant to be. So you're doing even further damage. And that's just a lot of the, the, the misconception out there, which is, is, yeah. is difficult to, because to, you have to turn the tide through education and allow the individual who's putting the, the pork rinds in their mouth to become mindful. Why am I eating this? What's in this? How do I feel while this is digesting? How do I feel, you know, 15, 45 minutes later? And I know you have been right. doing work where you and your wife actually, very interesting um, story. Can you just, can you break it down for us? What, what have you guys been up to in the, the yeah, wolf house, yeah. household? So, you, you know, kind of, and we didn't know that the results were going to be nearly as profound as what they were. But in the book, I, I have a recommendation for this thing called the seven day carb test where we pick a battery of carbohydrates. We eat 50 grams of effective carbohydrate in the morning. We try to make it the same time, the same kind of parameters each day. So we're making it as scientific as possible. And we use an inexpensive blood glucometer to check what our blood glucose levels are after the meal. And for myself, uh, some things like white rice, white potatoes, a pretty modest serving, like 50 grams of, of effective carbohydrate put my blood sugar up into the diabetic ranges, like 180, 190 at the two hour mark. Like it was pretty remarkable. And I felt like dog shit during that time. Like it was bad, bad, bad news for me. Whereas my wife, and we've always just kind of known just on an instinctive level that she was probably better at handling carbs than I am, but she ate the same amount. She's 30, 35 pounds lighter than I am. But her blood glucose response was consistently like 50 to 60 percent better than what mine was for yep. for any given meal. Um, so it was it was really interesting. But we also saw some kind of wacky stuff like uh, things like lentils. I did really well with. And then a good friend of mine, Eva Twardokin, she's a two time Olympian, six time uh, giant slalom world champion. She did well with white rice, well with white potatoes, and lentils sent her blood glucose again nearly into diabetic ranges. Wow. So there's probably some sort of a gut dysbiosis, like actually an immunogenic response. It was an irritant to her system that probably caused a cortisol release, and it released glucose out of the liver. So she had a blood glucose response that was above and beyond even what the carbohydrate content of the meal was. But the the takeaway from this thing and the reason why I recommend this seven-day carb test is, again, so that we can go – you know, we can take that general guideline of whole unprocessed foods and then get really specific about the amounts and types of of carbohydrates that we individually do best with. That's that's awesome. And is this this something you guys are just sitting on the couch one Saturday night like – what do you want to do? I don't know. You know let's, let's start monitoring our blood glucose levels. Well, you, you know, I did it personally as, as a little bit of an experiment for the book, and we were using some of this stuff in the clinic that we have here in working with police, military, firefighters, and just average folks. And then Nikki one day was like, hey, I want to do this too. And I'm like, okay, let's do it. And awesome. so we just started shooting some short video and throwing it on Instagram. Yeah, and it was really interesting. That's awesome. And it's great that you guys actually show that inside look to what you're actually doing. I mean, you're freaking Rob Wolf, and this is what you're doing. And even cooler is you're still experimenting and being mindful and still practicing. After all these years, you're still 
perfecting. And obviously, you guys eat well, you live well, you're very healthy, but you're still looking to be optimized, and you're you're constantly on that grind, on that path to be optimized. Just like in jujitsu, blue belt heading towards right. purple, heading towards you know black and red, eventually. Someday, if I live long enough, yeah, possibly <laughs> enough mat time, right? That's it. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, thank you. And you, you know, it's funny. Um, Ten years ago, I really thought I had all this stuff figured out and pretty wired, <laughs> right? And I, um, man, you know, on on both a fact basis and on a, a world experience basis, I know way more than I now than what I did ten years ago. And, um, I guess it's called like imposture syndrome and stuff like that. Like apparently there will be neurosurgeons that are like in the middle of brain surgery and they're like, am I really qualified to be doing this? And, and this is some <laughs> of the stuff that I've had, I'll be up doing a talk and I'm like, why are any of these people listening to me? I'm an idiot. I don't know any of this stuff, you know? And, uh, as time has gone on, I, I've just gotten, um, much less cocksure about what I was certain of and uh, much more, you know, kind of circumspect about what recommendations to make. And it, it seems like the most common thing that I say is it depends. What's the context? You know, I mean, there's yeah. all these qualifiers and you have to get really, um, really, you know, again, kind of granular and specific. And I know you you kind of play back and forth with this because you want to give people the best kind of big picture, simple recommendations to yes. get them moving in a good direction. But then you don't want that stuff to get written in stone, turned into religious dogma so that when you get granular and want to get specific, that people are freaking out because you're kind of doing a little bit of a, a program change. And that is a constant battle. Like people really – and I'm, I'll throw myself under the bus first with this. Like they want simple black and white yes, no, you know, options, but most of life just doesn't work well with that. Yeah. And what we do, and you hit it on the head, we have general and just because we try and speak a little more plainly to allow access to usable information without overthinking it. And then those that pay attention to us long enough will eventually get the, the, the wise. And mm-hmm. what we say is our, our number one principle is eat real food. Shut the fuck up. Eat real food. All right, let's do that. And only do that and then come back to us. Just eat real food, nothing processed. I don't care what it is. The next one is we eat every two to four hours based upon activity to refeed or to fuel, pre-fuel for what we're about to do. So let's just become mindful of our food decisions. The third is we eat until we're satisfied, not until we're full. We're slowing it down a little bit. We're not overeating. We can eat again in two hours, as little as two hours if we want to, need to. So let's slow it down a little bit. And how do we know we're satisfied? I should be able to push myself away from the table and uh, go for a light jog and have no ill effect from that. If I mm-hmm. can't quite do that, I, I've overstuffed a little bit. And then the the fourth is just do that. You know, just keep doing that. Get that stuff done. Yeah, until they throw dirt on you. Yeah, it, exactly. And then, you know, the last 20%, well, we can really fine tune. Now we can start carb cycling. We can look at meal timing. We can play with, you know, intermittent fasting, short window, long window. You know, we can do little dips into keto and we can shred to single digit body fat percentage or run ultra marathons. That's the last 20% of that general generality. Um, right. So, yeah, and I agree. And, uh, you know, we try and we're, we're preaching the exact same message, just, you know, with different terminology associated to it, which is right. well, awesome. And it, it, it's not surprising. I mean, it, it, you think about like kind of convergent evolution, a, a shark and a dolphin are aqueous predators. So they look a hell of a lot 
similar. They do a lot of the same stuff. And so if you and I are out in our, our respective laboratories trying to solve the same problems, then you end up probably coming up with reasonably similar solutions. You know, and, uh, I have historically worked with a more kind of sick and diseased population, you know, autoimmunity and some neurodegenerative type stuff. So I've definitely had a little bit of a, a swing towards that lower carb, maybe even a, a ketogenic deal. Um, but you know, to the degree that I've, I've, uh, uh, stuck my toe into the more performance oriented side of things, then I've, I've ended up discovering very similar things to what you're describing here. And, and again, working with the general population, you can't blow them out of the water with all the details at the beginning. Like yeah. they, they will pack up their stuff and run screaming away from you. So you've got to keep it super simple, provide some incrementation so that they can chip away at this and, and, uh, you know, get specific with their needs over time. Now, something that I think everybody listening can understand as, as a digestible piece, insulin sensitivity. How can you mm-hmm. explain insulin sensitivity to those listening with all different levels of comprehension on it? Oh, sure, sure. So, you know, a good example would be my wife versus myself. So my wife eats a given amount of carbohydrates and her blood sugar barely goes up. When it goes back down, it doesn't crash markedly lower than what her fasting blood glucose was. She's able to maintain really nice cognitive function all throughout the day. Even if she has a situation where she can't eat for six or eight hours, she'll get hungry, but she's still functional. She's not like melting down and, you know, getting getting hangry and, and uh, kind of crazy. Whereas someone like me, so my wife would be quite insulin sensitive when she eats a a meal, particularly a carbohydrate rich meal, a little bit of insulin tends to control her blood sugar very well for me, for whatever reason. And like both of my parents developed type two diabetes in their late thirties, early forties. Most likely my mom was gestationally diabetic with me, which potentially turned on some, some genetic signaling that predisposes me towards insulin resistance. But for my situation, I eat the same amount of carbohydrate as my wife. My blood sugars go much, much higher, and then they tend to crash below what that that initial fasted baseline was. And I get hungry and foggy-headed and lethargic and cranky. And so I have poor insulin sensitivity. And and so what we tend to see out out in the population, folks with good insulin sensitivity tend to generally be leaner bit more muscular, they recover better, you know, they, they manage, uh, uh, you know, different fuels a little bit more effectively. And then these more insulin resistant folks tend to need to, to keep an eye on the carbohydrate load better. If they, if they're going to take more advantage of carbohydrates, we need to focus it in the post-workout period, maybe earlier in the day when they're more insulin sensitive, maybe we do a little bit of carb cycling. So two or three days, a little lower and two or three days, a little higher. Um, but they, you just need a little more fastidious approach with the insulin resistant person, which would be me relative to my, my Wolverine like wife who, who I, I, I don't know if you could kill her, but she's Italian. So I, <laughs> I, I, Italians are tough to kill. That's true. Yeah, no, that's a great example. And when you say insulin sensitivity, that's it's a good thing. It's it's better to be sensitive than insensitive. Or you said, you know, she has good insulin sensitivity and you have poor insulin sensitivity. So people understand exactly. you want to be very sensitive so your body can 
adequately and accurately partition the nutrients you're consuming instead of essentially, and Rob, I'm the same way as you, um, man, I, I look at a piece of white bread and my, I can feel my, my, my hips jiggle. You know what I mean? I can, I can feel it. And you're probably the same way. And a lot of the guys yeah. listening right now, which is real talk, you know, I'm a 41 year old guy and it's hard and I can feel my body react a little more intuitive. I know like Rob is. So when you, you know, when you go off a little bit, you eat something, you might not have slice or three of pizza and, and something else. All of a sudden, the body just changes dramatically, feel like shit, lethargic, foggy. And then my wife can sit next to me, eat the rest of the pie and want to go rock climb or something crazy like that. Similar right. to you. It's, right. it's insane. It's not fair. It, it is not fair. But, <laughs> you know, the, the, the cool thing is that for the, the folks that pulled the, the genetic short end of the gene pool lottery, <laughs> like myself, um, uh, the, the cool thing is that so long as I eat in a way that my blood sugar looks a lot closer to my wife than yes. what my parents did, I can have the same metabolic benefits that she has. I can be lean. My likelihood of cardiovascular disease and neurodegenerative disease is very, very low. Um, and, and I can feel good and motor along pretty well. Now it kind of sucks cause I don't have quite as much latitude as she does, but that that's just, you know, I have a choice there. Like I did diabetic wound care on my dad as yeah. they amputated his toe then part of his foot, then his whole foot, then his lower leg and then above the knee. And man, that's just nothing I want to play with. And so for me, uh, you know, I, I feel really good eating the way that I do. It's taken some experimentation, but it really wasn't that big of a, a deal at the end of the day. And man, I, I tell you, managing a chronic degenerative disease like Parkinson's, Alzheimer's or type two diabetes, uh, man, there, there's really not any carbs that are, that are worth it for me to, to raise my likelihood of going down that road. Yeah. And you have that firsthand experience of seeing a lifestyle related illness in real life. Yeah. And yeah. Everyone sees it, but most people don't realize what they're actually looking at. You have a very profound view on lifestyle-related illness, which makes great sense why you are such a devout champion of this cause. You've devoted your entire life to helping other people be healthy. Well, and mainly try to keep my own neck out of the noose, too. It, yeah. It's yeah. selfish. First life I'm trying to save is my own. And then that's a pretty cool trade because the longer yeah. we can save Rob or Rob Wolf can save his own life, well, the many more millions of people you can save along with you. So hopefully, hopefully. that's yeah. a fair yeah. trade. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, a few people out along the way, too. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> of course. Of <laughs> Although course. my, my jujitsu game, what I've what I've arrived at with my jujitsu game is my destiny is to be good enough so that I make everybody around me look amazing. And okay. that's basically my, my role in life. Okay. So how long have you, and let, yeah, let's talk some jits, man. So where are you training? Who are you training with? Who's a black belt? Uh, so we're, I, I'm at the Gorilla Jiu-Jitsu Academy here in, in Reno. I've also done some work with the Atos uh, uh, Academy w under Kelly Farrell. And I'm mainly training under Scott Fritzinger and Andrew Bowers right now. And they're both like four-stripe brown belts. And yeah. so they're under the Dave Camarillo system. And theoretically, like a uh, knock on wood, um, theoretically this April 15th, I'm getting my purple belt. So we'll, yes. we'll see if I actually uh, – uh, you know, tick that box. But it, it's kind of funny. My very, very first jujitsu exposure was in 1992. So okay. oftentimes I've technically done jujitsu longer than just about anybody that I know. But I did about three or four days of jujitsu then. I was really into Thai boxing. And so I had to kind of pick one or the other. Yeah. And so I stuck with the Thai boxing. And this was still really early in this whole, you know, like UFC development and everything. 
And I didn't get my second round of a week or two of instruction until 2004. Okay. And then I, I was able to go for a couple of weeks. And then, you know, it was like 2012 that I actually went when I got here to Reno that I found a school that they had some middle of the day classes that I could make work with my work schedule and all that. So on the one hand, I've, I've studied jujitsu for like 30 years. And then on the other hand, I've, I've got like three and a half years of training. So, okay. Yeah. That's yeah. And it's awesome that now, and and you're early forties also. So how do you feel the difference? Let me, I want to back up a second because you know, everyone, most of the people listening are, are right in our demographic that, you know, 25 to 44 year old, heavily uh, skewed male, female, um, those that are on the grind right now, building their families, getting their homes, paying mortgages, working their jobs, 40, 50, 60 hours a week. So Rob Wolf, you are a husband. You are the father of two beautiful young daughters, single digit age. You are a, you know, phenom. You just wrote another international best-selling book in addition to your multiple responsibilities within your practice and your client base and such. Where the fuck do you get off finding time to train and exercise yourself <laughs> a few hours a week? How dare you do this? Pardon my language. Oh, man. I'm pissed. Well, you, you know, it's it's funny. Um, so, man, time efficiency has definitely become a big deal. A lot of times my workouts have become things that I do with my my kids. And so, like, if awesome. I'm doing, like, some planche push-up stuff, I'll have them sit on my back or, like, I'll do weighted chins with them. Um, yesterday, I had my daughter, Zoe. She's five, almost five years old. I did some sprint intervals, but what I had her do is get on her bicycle. Oh. And I would give her a lead start. She would start 30, 40 yards ahead of me, and then we would do a 100-yard sprint. And I would basically set it up where, like, I had to haul ass to catch her. You know, I kept, okay, Zoe, go forward, go forward, go forward. And so she was going hell bent for leather trying to beat me. And then I had to do like, there was no padding it. Like I had to run as fast as I could. And we got to the end and we would like high five and then cruise back. Nice, easy, you know, recovery. And we did 15 or 20 of those. And she's like, dad, my legs are strong. And I'm like, God damn straight. They are. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, you know, so, you know, like weight training stuff, I maybe get two days a week, 15, maybe 20 minutes max. Yep. And it's kind of a circuit. I mean, it's not a CrossFit type circuit, but I'll get a, a load that is heavy, three to five reps, uh, some sort of press, some sort of pull, a hip bridge, a deadlift. And I, I, I will work my way through those. I'll usually have three movements, a lower body movement and then a press pull combo and I'll, I'll warm up, get a reasonably heavy weight. And by heavy though, it's challenging, but I can still move the load in less than a second on the concentric phase. And what I find is, um, I, I stay plenty strong for jujitsu. I, I keep a little bit of muscle mass on, but it does nothing as far as damaging my, my recovery. And if I notice that my strength work or my outside conditioning work limits my on the mat training, then I did too much. Like the only time that I feel a little smoked is after doing a, a pretty frisky round of jujitsu. And even then probably 85, 90% of my jujitsu training, I try to make it drilling, try to make it incremental. So like if I'm in hat, you know, it's like I'm on top half guard and I'm trying to get to side control or side control to North South or something. And we have some really specific stuff that we're working on. And I, so in an hour time of fiddling with that, I can get a hundred, 200 repetitions playing with this whole process. Yeah. And it's not the most exciting way to train, but I've found that I'm not smoked. It, it develops good work capacity for me. And I get a lot of really 
quality repetitions. And uh, I, I guess a couple of other things, like I try to work on a pretty non-attribute game, like my gi and my no-gi game are virtually identical. I don't do a lot of like, uh, uh, you know, spider guard and some really grip dependent stuff because I, I, I've just seen a lot of my coaches with some pretty, pretty chewed up hands from doing these very attribute grip dependent games. Yeah. And also because I'm kind of a lug nut, if I just learn one thing, you know, I don't need to have a gi game and a no gi game. So uh, I, I've gone and hung out with Henry Akins a number of times and and uh, gone to a number of his seminars. And he has a very similar approach. You know, it's just a very meat and potatoes, uh, you know, type of uh, jujitsu um, again, non-attribute based and his gi and no gi game look very, very similar, you know, very, sure. very, uh, subtle differences there. Awesome. And how often are you going now to jits? Usually man, three to five days a week. Love it. So I, I get a decent, decent amount of, of training it. Yeah. 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 And that's, and that's, you're on that grind, man. You're focused and you, you make time for it. And that's where I want to circle back to. You've made it a priority. You've made time for it and you don't let it detract from your family time or from your responsibilities. And I guarantee you have no idea what Kim Kardashian's been up to the last month though. <laughs> no, you know what no, I mean? I <laughs> and you probably have just a, a little grasp on most pop culture events, let alone, you know, geopolitical events, even I'm sure you have awareness and you read a little deeper on here and there, but you're not spending an hour, three hours per day digging into that type of, of content. You're focused, you know, much more granular within your own life. I'm going to use that term, the Rob Wolf granular term. So, (laughs) which is awesome. It's just, I'm very visual. So I, I see that piece of you inside your day, you put these blocks together inside your day and you get so much more done than the average person who feels much more overwhelmed than you. Yeah. And you know, I mean, I, I've been really fortunate in that we, you know, this is a, now 15, 18 year long process of figuring out what the good, you know, what to prioritize, what to jettison. Um, my, my wife is incredibly supportive of what I'm up to and she manages a ton of like my, my online activity and the, you know, the backend financials and business side. And so I'm really fortunate in that regard because a lot of folks end up needing to wear all the hats and, if I had to do all the financial monitoring and and also do a lot of the the wheel spinning that she does on uh, social media and keeping the blog updated and all that stuff, it would be really really hard for me to do uh, you know a little bit of training, a little bit of jujitsu and whatnot. So I'm very fortunate in that regard. Like I, I there's definitely been some conscious kind of lifestyle engineering and then also some some good luck you know just having a wife that's super supportive um helps me with all the stuff that i'm doing she we've been pretty good about that though like she was a co-founder of a technology company about five years ago and i really put everything i was doing on on part-time and uh she would breastfeed the kid. I was kind of Mr. Mr. Mom at home. I would grab the kid. You know, we would go run around at the park and do different things. I did my blog, did the podcast a little bit, but this was kind of on the heels of my first book. And so I went into kind of a halftime mode while she developed this technology company. And then she spent about, she really does a great job uh, going from the swamp to the dirt road. Like she likes that fight in the beginning of getting a, a business going. 
And once you get an HR department and all that type of stuff and, you know, people can't tell each other dirty jokes and send questionable things around Slack anymore, she's done. Like she's she's out. And so she checked out of that about two years ago and we started ramping up some things that I'm doing on like the risk assessment program and whatnot. So I've got to give huge props to her. Like I'm able to do the things that I do because I get so much support at home from from her. And that's a great a point you bring up that we can touch on. I have a very similar situation with my wife, Brandy, who's been, she does a lot of the same. She she's deals with the accountant. She does the back end. She does the content editing. She helps, you know, all the things that you had described, my better half does that, that I certainly couldn't do. I couldn't keep up with her. Then you'd have to employ someone to do that for you, but then you would have to manage that employee and that becomes very time invasive also. So your ability to really explore your top end and, and, and to continue with your research and, and really think broader is, you know, the ability to do that is predicated upon that support system. And you have that. And those listening, sometimes we avoid our support systems or we, you know, don't give them the credit that they deserve. Like you just so, you know, very eloquently gave to your wife for assisting to bring the people in around you to assist when you're making some sort of lifestyle change. Cause everybody listening, we can all do better. We can all be healthier. We, and you know, of course, you know, we're so nutrition and lifestyle minded that everyone from this podcast should start making better nutrition choices. But when you go home and the household isn't in alignment, that becomes an issue in itself. That becomes a, a huge burden to just overcome and, you know, have avocados in the house when, you know, somebody in the house is eating, uh, you know, Twinkies or whatever, something else instead. Right. Um, right. But so you've aligned your lifestyle, you know, by finding a like-minded person to help support you in this, this joint vision of the family. Now you have your own personal passions that you love and you go and do independently. And what we see, you know, quite a bit is, there's this discontent at home, this challenge, this, this you know, abrasive relationship that's inhibiting both parties or all parties, children included, from that forward momentum. So do you do any type of that work to your team? Do you have any insight on aligning that, you know, nuclear support system for individual success? Oh, man, that's a really good question. And I'll, I'll be honest, we are just now starting to ask some of those questions. Like uh, so much of what I've done has been more reactionary than planned. It's like, oh, I, I, I want to do this. And I don't really think through the implications. Is this in a triage process? Is this really the most important thing I should do? And we've just now like funny enough, uh, uh, Thursdays are now the day that my wife and I were going to go do a float each week. So we go do a float tank together and we work on the business, not just in the business. So we're not just reacting to emails. You know, we, we get out of reactionary mode. And right now what we're, we're asking some questions like what type of help do we need to be able to take things to another level? And we definitely recognize that we need someone to help us with some, some, uh, copy, you know, writing some copy editing, maybe some uh, uh, video and audio post-production activity. And so we're starting to delineate some of that stuff that we need help with to be able to offload a little bit of the, the repetitious stuff so that we can focus a little bit more on the creative side and ask those questions. What do we want to do? You know, where do we want to go with this? What do we, what do we feel like will be the most fun and the most excitement? And so we're ju literally just starting to ask those questions. And I feel kind of embarrassed by it because we've been, we've been doing this stuff for so long 
but it's, uh, you know, I'm one of those classic technicians. Like I just liked nutrition and chemistry and everything. And I got in and started doing this and to be completely frank, I didn't really have a plan. You know, I didn't have a marketing background. It, it was just, uh, kind of shooting from the hip and we're just now starting to get a little bit more sophisticated and ask some good questions about where should this thing go. And that's cause you followed your passion. So you weren't. It, 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 yeah. And, it, it, and, uh, and, and thank you. Yes. For acknowledging that. Yes. But there the reaches a point where the passion needs a little bit of forethought. Otherwise you're just kind of, you're a, you're a very passionate spaz. And I, I would say the last like 10 years I've been a passionate spaz and now I'm trying to put a little bit of focus and triage and planning into what we're doing. Um, particularly because like this risk assessment program, if I could, if I could really get this thing going, like it could, it could be incredibly powerful, particularly within that police, military and fire scene. Like those are some, uh, very at risk populations for these Mm -hmm. metabolic issues, the insulin resistance. And so I need to be really on point to be able to pull that stuff off. And I can't do it in a a reactionary kind of mode. And you're trying to to get this inside the healthcare system, in the insurance system, inside the the framework. Oh man! Or is yes, that the and, battle? Because you no, said a- you know it's it, it, and not to to you you know we'll we'll be down to like two listeners here really quickly. But uh, what it, it's interesting we um we pitched all this stuff to the biggest entities in healthcare that you could find, and yeah. they were just kind of jaw dropped. They're like, this is totally amazing, <laughs> but the way that the incentives are set up in most of healthcare right now, there's really not a big incentive for cost savings. There's some really wacky misaligned incentives. There are some entities called self-insured captives where companies basically as a wealth management strategy, they create insurance uh, vehicles that they put their own money into and they manage that. And so in those instances, those folks, the incentives are aligned and we're getting some some really quite good buy-in from those folks. And so, yeah, we are growing this thing on first a regional level and then we'll look at some some replication further afield but it's uh it's been really interesting and and uh just a huge quagmire trying to to nose into the um the insurance scene because a lot of people make money off of sick care yeah. you know and and uh Absolutely. if we were really effective at health care at health you know maintenance at disease prevention um, you know, you make money off of, I guess, caskets and and, you know, uh, birth announcements. And that's really about it, because people largely stay out of the system until either birth or death. Yeah. And that's that's probably one of the biggest issues with the healthcare system. It, the healthcare system is not health care. Like you said, it, it's really sick care and preferably for them, I would believe sick maintenance so they can just keep right. you sick and keep those billable hours whether it's the the band-aid or the $40 aspirin or the you know the pharmaceutical and the drip and the three specialists that walk in your room and you get a hit with the 15 25 $100 charge and this is kind of a, a topic I, I spoke about a few episodes back in a little rant when you go to the hospital you don't even know what you're getting charged and you right. get an a la carte of services and products lined up for you as if you're in this fancy restaurant and then your card is just swiped without ever seeing the menu and knowing what am I getting charged for? I don't, you're not signing off on any of these things. You don't see what the price structure is. So this is probably not, not the time for, you know, this, maybe we do another hour on this. So when it comes to healthcare and people are, they can't afford healthcare, they've never really pushed back to find out what the actual costs are. They're only focused on their premium and, you know, what their, their monthly rate is and, and such, but not on, 
Is the MRI $700? Is it $1,500? Is it $2,500? Why such a large swing in difference when milk at, you know, Acme or Safeway or Pathmark or 7-Eleven or Wawa is, is $3 a gallon pretty much everywhere you go? And I think that, that creates this whole other spectacle around the healthcare system that people don't really yeah. talk about. They blame the politicians when it's really, you know, ask to see how much things cost before they provide it for you. You know, God willing, you're not on, on the deathbed in the ER. Right, right. Yeah, I could not agree more. Yeah, it's it's insane. So with that blood work, so the average person listening, let's give them some takeaways. We every three months, we always tell our audience, you got to get your blood work done every three, never any longer than every six, but every three months, let's get our blood work done. What does Rob Wolf want to see when a client walks into your office with a fresh blood panel? You know, what we do, it, it, particularly in the clinic, uh, we look at the classic stuff, um, fasted glucose, total cholesterol, HDL cholesterol, triglycerides, you know, all, all of those sorts of things. I also like to see A1C, which is kind of a measure of blood glucose over time. I also like to look at a, a marker called fructosamine, which is another indicator of glycolytic damage or the accumulation of, of uh, advanced glycation end products. And what's interesting is in some people, if they eat kind of low carb, their red blood cells can actually live much longer than normal. And so it can make their A1C, which is a measure of how much sugar is sticking to the red blood cell proteins, it can make that look artificially high. Whereas if the fructosamine is low, then we're like, okay, that's that's just an artifact of the fact that the red blood cells are living longer. And then I really like some additional advanced testing that looks at LDL particle count, gotcha. the lipoprotein count. And based off of that, we get a really nice picture of their kind of cardiovascular disease risk using that LDLP number and a few other numbers that are generated with that. We can generate what's called an LPIR score, a lipoprotein insulin resistance score. And from basic blood work, when we look at like the triglyceride to HDL ratio, you can get a sense of one's insulin sensitivity or insulin resistance. But it's interesting between 40 and 60 percent of people, though, can be missed as insulin resistant particularly if, if the insulin resistance is kind of a, an outgrowth of sleep deprivation or a hypervigilant state. So we see this a lot in cops and firefighters. And these people will go through standard blood work and they look okay. But then when we look at them through our lens using this uh, LPIR score, they're what's called discordant. They have very high lipoprotein count, but comparatively low cholesterol numbers. And these are the people that are 35, 38 years old, and they keel over and die from a heart attack due to insulin resistance and systemic inflammation. So, you know, for under 300 bucks, depending on where you order it, that's generally the stuff that I like to look at. I always really like whether male or female, any age, I really like to look at the, the full kind of androgen profile, estrogen, testosterone, all the all the. Uh, derivatives, but that starts adding another three or four or five hundred dollars, you know, depending on where you're getting this stuff tested. So, um, as just a baseline, that that um, you know that basic panel plus the LPIR score is really valuable in in helping people figure out where they are on their metabolic health. And do you have your people? Do you do blood draws at your clinic? Do you send them out to a local lab core via script from their? Um, their uh, family. Both. Okay. And, and I would say 90% of our volume is that, that, uh, uh, ordered out and then LabCorp communicates the data to us. And what's kind of cool, we have a database of, I don't know, 22,000 patients now. Wow. 
And so we have some really cool algorithms that help to sort people. We look at ethnicity, age, gender, work environment. We do a really extensive health risk assessment questionnaire and all that data gets dropped into this database. And then after your information flows through that, then we have a report that is kind of auto written, you know, with some some uh, macros and templates that gets spit out. And then either a doctor or a dietitian looks at it, looks at your, your total report. And then he or she will fill in more of the gaps then. So some of it's somewhat automated, but there's always a meat bot at the end of it that looks at it and says, okay, yeah, this all makes <laughs> sense. Or, Hey, we have some, something squirrely here. And, and our program is a, exclusively a wellness program. So if somebody gets diagnosed with type two diabetes, if their cardiovascular risk parameters are super bad, then they get immediately referred to what someone that's uh, called a super specialist. And we have super specialists in all, all 50 states, and we can refer them to someone that can deal with their specific issue, whether that's cardiovascular disease or autoimmunity or what have you. And that super specialist, they're part of your team? Yeah, I mean, they're they're basically we uh, we vet and review them, and then there's someone that we can refer out. So I mean, they're, they're sure. part of the team, but in a, a very uh, uh, weekly connected fashion. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah. Outside consultant endorsed for their skill set. Exactly. Awesome. Exactly. Oh, that's, that's awesome. It. So yeah. people get a great reference to go. Hey, go check out Joe over there. You know, he yeah. passed our sniff yeah. test. Because we're in northern Nevada, if we have somebody in New Jersey that has type 2, you know, they didn't know that they were type 2 diabetic, we need somebody there locally that they can go interface with. Yeah. Everybody in Jersey is type 2 diabetic, goddammit. (laughs) (laughs) I'm from Jersey, of course. (laughs) Uh, It's all the, uh, the, the fucking cannolis and the pizza and the pork roll, egg, and cheese. Oh man, I mean, it's amazingly tasty stuff. So again, you you can't beat yourself up for wanting to eat it. it. It's the best food ever made. So that's on my list. So back this summer, we're planning on going for maybe a month or so back to visit family and let them see the girls. We've been on the West Coast for ten years or so now. Go back and everyone can see the girls. Nice. Uh, I'm gonna eat a pork roll egg and cheese sandwich when I'm out there. <laughs> hey, Robin, I'm gonna text you the photo, man, and I'm gonna ask do, for do it. Do it. Okay. Just get a good workout in before so that you get a good swole off of it. I so, yeah, love yeah. it. That's a that takes me exactly where we want to go. I know we're getting short on time. You have a few more minutes. I don't want to Absolutely. break. Absolutely, it, it, as much as you want. Oh yeah. hell yeah! All right, cool. So you talked about you have that workout, and then you can go and slam some shit food. Now John Kiefer had car backloading, and he's kind of had a proponent of this style and. I think he's a smart guy. That program works. It's not my style of program. I'm not going to endorse it, but you can say that results will come from it. You said something that's very similar. Can you please expand for us? Yeah, yeah. So intense exercise, whether weight training or really uh, vigorous sprint interval training, tends to upregulate some of these glucose transporters, the GLUT4 in, in particular in the muscles. And this, people will say that it improves insulin sensitivity. That's not really quite the case. What it does is some some glucose transport that's not insulin mediated. And so- I love it. You're so smart, Rob Wolf. Keep going. Thanks. Go. Hopefully, if you spend 20 years in a topic, you've got some degree of competency, but uh, uh, thank you. um, You explained it so well, too, which is awesome. Continue. Thank you. Uh, So- You know, if we want to kick our heels up a little bit, you know, like, okay, so we're going to a birthday party and there's going to be some some reasonably questionable food there. Um, Get a little workout in beforehand, you know, do do a circuit of squats, push ups and and 
uh, pull-ups or something like that. And you don't have to be a nutcase about it, but it is really fascinating. Like we just a little bit of experimenting that my wife and I did, and we've seen this in, in clients. There's good indication about this in the literature. You can improve your glucose disposal like 50%. So if you were going to get, let's say like a, a 180 blood glucose response after a particular meal, you do one of these little sprint interval workouts or like a circuit, you know, kind of glycogen exhausting workout and you do that meal, you might only top off about 135, 140 or something like that, which is a really remarkable improvement in the blood sugar response. And it's also going to improve the, the insulin response. Now, you can't necessarily do that every single day. You're going to you're going to, you know, break. This is a little bit of, you know, one foot on the brake, one foot on the gas type of gig. So you want to use this thing a little bit strategically. But this is definitely a, a solid way of managing you know, a situation where maybe you've, you, you don't have great food options and you know you're not going to have great food options. But if you can get in a little bit of a, a workout before and then interestingly also, if you can just take a walk after that meal and I mean literally just a stroll, that can drop your blood sugar 15, 20 points in, in a, a very rapid fashion. And I mean really no harm, no foul. Like it, it's no no stress out of your day. You, you figure out an easy way to take a walk after the meal and it could dramatically improve your blood glucose response. That right there is the gold, ladies and gentlemen. If you and it's so simple and there's no – it's all free. You just got to do it. You just got to do it. So it's your daughter's birthday party next week and – She's got her princess cake and whatever the, the food of the day is going to be, and you're not going to be sticking the mud daddy. You're going to eat your daughter's cake, but you are going to go out and you're going to get that interval circuit in an hour or so beforehand, and you're going to take your shower and you're going to be ready and cleaned up, and you can house some of that white processed sugar, God forbid, if, if you have to. Yeah, yeah. It's really not that big of a deal. And and again, and you've made this point so many times Um when people get more metabolically healthy, they just have more latitude. You know, they're just more robust. Exactly. They're harder to harder to kill. And this is something that I've really um, I've become more and more awake to over the course of time. We want to build resilient people. We want to build people that are in some ways a step above a cockroach. Like we want, you, you know, nuclear war happens. They live. Uh, yeah. uh, they, they they get scrapped in a 7-Eleven for five days and the power's out. They live. You know, we don't want people that are so fragile that one tiny deviation off their nutritional plan crushes them. Yeah. Now, there are people with autoimmune disease and gut issues that they are that fragile. But the goal isn't to keep them there. It isn't to cater to that. It's to get them as resilient and strong and and adaptable as as possible. And this is something that, you know, the longer that I've motored along with this, the more that I, I think about this whole process through that resiliency, you know, perspective, like how hard would it be to kill you? And let's make that harder and make it harder, make it harder. And you do that by being healthier, by optimizing right. your full potential as a, a human being, as a, this biological organism. Right. And that's, that's awesome stuff. Now with training, you do the same thing because you have a powerlifting background. You have a functional fitness background. You have a martial arts background. That's pretty hard to fucking kill that dude right there. Cause you're a, a specialist in all You're a purple belt in all areas. Let's say a little higher in, in some others maybe, but very well-rounded badass on all types of 
physical performance and performance attributes and energy system usage and muscular system usage. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, um, it provides a lot of, of, uh, headroom. Like if I have some friends that want to go rock climbing, I can go rock climbing with them and I'm not going to be an expert at it by any means, but I can kind of hang in there. And then we have some folks that want to go do some big bike rides and I'm able, you know, as long as I don't redline myself, like I'm not going to beat anybody at it, but I'm also not going to, uh, explode and crater out and, and not be able to participate in it. So, and you know, that's a little bit of that, that kind of CrossFit mentality, which I, uh, I don't know if, if you know this, but I, I helped co-found the first and fourth CrossFit affiliates in the world. So, you know, I, I mean, there was do. so, you, you know, there's so much cool stuff there. And it, the, the fact that it turned into a sport is both amazing on the one hand, cause it really propelled it to this kind of, you know, rock star status. And it kind of sucks in a way too, for the guys like me that just like being in a gym and like working with people because there was something really beautiful about those couplets and triplets and just kind of being ready for anything and not necessarily needing to spend three or four hours a day in the gym to, to have a certain degree of, of capacity. And so I, I do really like elements of that kind of CrossFit mentality, you know, uh, properly dosed, it can be really powerful and really, really time effective. Yeah. And you know, I, you were one of the, um, one of the big names behind the CrossFit movement early on from a you know, exercise science side, but also the nutrition science. And you were the name in CrossFit nutrition for quite some time. And, you know, there was some disagreement as there always is in, in, in bigger business, it, it seems. And there was a little bit of, of shifting um, not from a scientific perspective, probably just a cultural perspective. I'm trying to just be as polite as, as possible, but from an exercise perspective we've seen, cause I remember over a decade or so ago in, in, you know, one of uh, Henzo's affiliates in Jersey, how far are we going back? Probably oh three or oh four, my Thai coach, Greg Mihovich, who runs the underground gym out there uh, still, um, very, uh, Pavel esque, um, and he's like, hey, here's gonna, we're going to do this workout today. It's going to be a deadlift 185. Um, I forget how many times, like three times or eight times. And then we're going to go and sprint 400 meters. We're going to do that like 10 times. I was like, okay, this is the craziest fucking thing. Because I came straight from a wrestling, then a powerlifting background. This is, well, I can deadlift you know, three times that much. And I don't want to sprint, <laughs> you know, so kind of, but right. I <laughs> typically not 400 meters multiple times. Yeah. No, it, dude, it was insane. And I did the workout. I felt worse after the workout. Now I know it's something that if I trained for that, I would get really good at doing that. So I think what, what I'm, I'm kicking to you is, have you seen, and Ripito has been pretty frank about his thoughts on the evolution of the CrossFit programming. And we work with CrossFit athletes here, mind you. So I'm not, you know, critical of those that compete, but from a true science perspective, when you look at the programming behind CrossFit, what they're currently doing, are they truly trying to build, you know, to optimize athletic potential or the expression of full athletic potential, or are they just trying to segment athletic potential within their own confines? They're, they're trying to make rugby or they're trying to make cricket instead of baseball or an athlete that's good at baseball and cricket and rugby and soccer and football. You're only going to be really good at cricket when you follow the CrossFit general programming systems. Mm, mm, man, that's a really good question. I haven't, I haven't, honestly thought about it at, at that level of detail. I, I, I will, I'll throw this out there. I'll throw this out there. This isn't really answering the question, but I'll, I'll throw this out there. 
Um, even though it is presented as the gospel that the way that you get best at CrossFit is this completely randomized approach, nobody at the top tiers is randomizing their training. Yeah. It's all block periodization, volume accumulation. Uh, uh, the, the stuff is segmented. You build a big aerobic base. You build a really big strength base. And then you start integrating that stuff together into a uh, mixed bodal activity that, that then interestingly brings them into that middle ground of that really highly glycolytic pathway. And that's a super contentious thing. Like, uh, I, you know, we, you and I will get like a cease and desist letter, you know, saying that. But when you really hold folks feet to the fire, that's the way they're training. And so I think that that basic randomized template is fantastic for a beginner. It's fantastic for like an, an aged population so long as the the loading is thought out and some progressions are thought out but it's just like anything else specificity wins and you need to think about what your strengths and weaknesses are and uh you know i i've talked to my friend john wellborn who was a 10-year nfl veteran and and developed the power athlete training program uh he got to hang out with ajibayev before he died a, a number of times you know like one of the big uh, uh russian programmers and it, it's just um there's such a huge need for specificity and looking at what your individual needs are and, and then catering to that via the programming. So I, I think again, you know, the more beginner the person is, they can benefit from a generalized approach. But as you start climbing that, that tree and wanting to get more and more specific in your, your, uh, outcomes, then you need some sort of planning and periodization. And Ripito has been quite articulate in that. A lot of people have been very articulate and regardless of what the, the hyperbole is around it, the people who are winning things, this is the way that they train. Yeah. And those at the top, obviously they're just like any, any elite athlete, whether NBA, NFL, UFC, that it becomes individualized training. It doesn't become team mm-hmm. or group training anymore because they all, they're, they're threading that needle, you know, and there's, there's no wiggle room. So everything has to be perfect. One, you right. know, extra second on, on the handstand with CrossFit matters. One more muscle up for time. Well, that, that matters pretty dramatically over such a large pool. So I understand that, you know, I think those listening and we, you know, it's not a disrespect. I actually wrote a, a pretty well-read um, opinion piece on my reversal of thought on CrossFit because originally I was like, ugh. I, I just I didn't get it. I wasn't part of the culture. I was I was really I was always on the outside. And I always came from more of the strength and the combat sports side. And the training was periodized, you know, much more of that block periodization, as you're aware, much much differently. So I would look at that and the numbers used and kind of the, some of the issues I had with form. And then one of our our dietitians here is a a competitor and a licensed coach, a certified coach in the system. And we sponsor her for one of her local meets. And I went and I brought my wife and, and Victoria was a few months old at the time. And man, I was blown away by the smiles on everybody's faces. And I'm not, you know, promoting now CrossFit, but I saw grandparents and parents and children cheering on somebody in one of those generations. Right, right. And I saw these relatively fit, good looking, you know, people of all, I mean, from early teens and kids groups all the way till into the 60s, kicking some ass. And then I thought about my involvement in MMA. My first time in an MMA gym off the street, I was sparring against a guy that was really good. <laughs> that's that's probably worse than you know just doing um, you know snatches, yes, pull ups. Yeah, 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 way more dangerous. I got a killer in front of me instead of just a ninety five pound barbell. Um, 
and I kind of, you know, I, I took another look at it. But of course, the caveat is into the specificity. It's a good general kind of system. It's only as good as the coach, I think, and the curriculum and the biomechanics that are being enforced that matters. But like any sport, you know, for martial arts is probably the worst because hand down, knocked out, you know, not just a torn rotator cuff. Right. Um, Right. But for someone like you at your level, you certainly do see in a lot of the other coaches out there when it does come to the science behind a, a, a proper template program. I don't I don't have my athletes training in that style because we're much more specific. It's much more one on one. And it, you sound to do the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, uh, the little bit of of MMA folks that I trained, like if they were just kind of burned out on their day to day, stand up, clinch ground. And they're like, man, I just need a couple of weeks off. I'm like, okay, cool. And we would do kind of a moderate dose CrossFit type of deal sure, because they still had that competitive stuff going on. They could get a little bit of the competitive juices going and it worked a lot of the same energy systems, but in a, a pretty general way. And so it was kind of a nice, um, off season way to get these, these glycolytic sport athletes doing something different. And then when they were like, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm tired of thrusters and pull-ups and they would start, you know, cycling up their, their stand-up clinch and ground work, then we would phase that out. And it was, you know, uh, three sets of three squat, clean and jerk, press, push, press. Uh, I, I have, uh, because of some capoeira background, I've always liked handstand work and some hand balancing and, and a lot of, uh, Back bridging, you know, back back handstand work and, and stuff like that seems to be really good for the thoracic mobility and kind of stabilizing the rotator cuff. So I'm a little little outside the box on that. But I mean, it ends up just being like the most boring, simple. And, and again, like I've always been pretty grandmotherly on that stuff. I would way rather to oh, um, underdose them on the strength and conditioning side than overdose them because I, I still think that the the main fire, the main energy needs to be spent doing skill training. And yeah. so, you know, it, it, and, uh, you know, so much of, of, uh, uh, combatives in particular, everything happens so fast that there's a, a real quick drop off, like getting specifically stronger at a squat or a deadlift. It can help rate of force development up to a point with something like a tie kick or a jab or a cross, or even like a snap down or something but really quickly it fails. And then beyond that, um, you know, if you're particularly if you're doing weight class type stuff, uh, 20 more pounds on your bench probably isn't going to be the deciding factor in a, in a, a fight. You know, we want some injury prevention. We want some armor plating on people. We do want to improve their, their rate of force development to the degree that, that weight room type stuff will lend itself to that. But it's a really limited run. I mean, you get, a, a you know, 180 pound athlete where they've got a, double body weight deadlift, a uh, body weight and a half back squat, maybe a body weight, uh, standing press, um, you know, uh, 50 to 75% of body weight around their waist on a, on a supinated grip chin that that's pretty fucking strong for a combat athlete. And I, I don't see being much stronger than that really doing a whole lot of good. And it requires a hell of a lot more training to get much beyond that. Yeah. But if you look at a, a, a legit strength athlete, like those numbers are laughable. That's, that's like a, a novice heading towards intermediate level. But that's kind of the reality that for uh, uh, combat sports, like, you know, being super, super strong isn't necessarily always an asset. 
Yeah, and there there has to be that blend. There sh- there must always be that fine blend in regardless of sport. And each sport will have its specific you know needs that you need to be a little little bit better at. And you picture a, a Phelps physique or a Ed Cohn you know powerlifter right. type of physique. There needs to be specificity. But Ed Cohn was very mobile. You could say you know Phelps is mobile. Ed is very powerful. Well, Phelps isn't as powerful, but you know that he's challenging or, or challenging, um, channeling explosivity within his training periodization system. So it's having those nice carryovers and that becomes balanced. So we have a balanced exercise program. We have balanced nutrition before we go, I'm going to have you break down a simple day, but the last piece of balance you and I, I both know are in accord on is recuperation and stress management mm-hmm. is probably the most overlooked piece of putting this together. We touched on it earlier with support systems, but can you circle back on just a few ways to look at stress management and recuperation methodology, whether it's sleep or you know other means, and how does yeah. that help with the fat yeah, loss and know, fitness? I, absolutely. That's a great question. Uh, I really like HRV monitoring, that heart rate variability monitoring, because it gives you a good sense each day of kind of the status of the individual and what the total load is is kind of impacting the individual's sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system we 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 can't really be in both um fight or flight and uh rest and repair at the same time and we tend to spend way too much time in that fight or flight mode not enough time in the rest and repair mode which is that parasympathetic space and so you know, I, I would say easily the most important part of that equation is sleep. If we're if we're underslept, it doesn't matter what else we're doing. Like there's just nothing more anabolic, more restorative that you could do than than getting as much sleep as your body needs. And sleeping a little bit on the earlier side as opposed to the late side, uh, that's just incredible. Um, I'm really, you know, it's interesting. People have gotten into like cryotherapy and stuff like that, you know, hot and cold alternating saunas. I'm really a big fan of just the heat. Like I think okay. the the heat cold is good, but um, you know, for me and and some of the folks that I've I've worked with, uh just doing those like 140 degree dry saunas, uh particularly after a hard training session, it's really interesting. Like I I uh, I definitely feel like I recover from that. And then if I have an off day, and um, maybe I do a little bit of light recovery cardio and then do, you know, 20, 30 minutes in a, in a hot, dry sauna. It, it's just incredible for me. Like it is hard to describe how much better I feel. And again, this is very subjective stuff. But I've noticed that if I do some of these cold water immersions, I'll feel pretty good immediately. But then the next day I'm like kind of stiff and sore and it actually seems like it's kind of stymied the recovery process. And so, it, again, kind of a personal preference there, I've noticed that heat tends to do better for me than, than the cold. Okay. And, uh, man, those are really the biggies, you know, I mean the, the sleep and then, um, you know, uh, uh, some sort of, a uh, heat exposure. I am starting to do more float tank stuff. Like I'm trying to get in one, one time a week and getting that, that, uh, sensory deprivation nice. float. And it's amazing. Like that is a phenomenal, kind of system reset, but, you know, doing something as simple as getting a little meditation app on your smartphone and taking five minutes twice a day and doing some, you know, box breathing, the cyclical breathing, you know, inhale through the nose, four seconds in pause, two seconds, four to eight seconds out. You do 10 cycles of that. And a person's heart rate will drop significantly after that, which gets us more into that rest and recovery mode. And those are all, I mean, 
you know, if you have access to a gym and they've got a sauna, that's kind of free. The, the, uh, the heart rate variability thing may set you back a little bit of money, but most of this stuff is free. It's just a matter of doing it. It's either free or really cheap or like a one-time, you know, a one-time buy, like 99 cents for your, your smartphone. And you've got a, a meditation app to help you do some, some box breathing, but it's, Really, the key is just being consistent and listening to your body's feedback. And uh, it's funny because I, it, 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 I'd be interested to know your your thoughts on this. But it seems like our population falls into one of two camps. They either are are really in a in an effort to commit suicide via exercise, or we need to douse them with gasoline to get them off the fire or get them off the couch, you know, and, and there seems to be almost no middle ground, like trying to get people into that middle ground of, yeah, man, exercise, push it, but, but don't try to kill yourself. Like it, it's a, it's a hard thing to get people to that, that healthy middle ground. I agree a hundred percent. And it's, why is it somewhere along the way people felt that exercise was punishment or it's a way for, I think, the, the A-type, the over-exerters to regain their mommy or daddy's love in, in some you know Freudian type of, of way. I don't know. I think in time, I was able to find the happy neutral. If I get 20, if I can bang out a few hundred bodyweight squats in 20 minutes, because that's all I have time, or even five minutes, I will just bodyweight squat until I'm exhausted. And then I'll go through like you, I, I got a 20 hour day of, of gigs and work and people and all that, the BS that falls in front of me. I'll grind it out and not feel bad at all. Or I'll hit a 45 to 75 minute intense, properly periodized, structured strength program, you know, scalable and percentage of one RMs and, and all that stuff. But I don't get dogmatic anymore in, I have to be in the gym every day or I suck. I'm a failure. I lost all my gains. And you never have to tell me, man, you, you better exercise. Like I'm, I'm right. just going to, you know, I'm just going to throw the girls in the carriage. We're just going to go walk around the neighborhood, you know, while you're talking to your mom, just that type of let's get out, let's get active. Let's get some vitamin D blood flowing, right. you know? So I think it's, I think that's why, why you and I are on the air and we're talking is because we're trying to help. Like you talked about, you know, mediating that, that blood sugar sensitivity. We have to mediate the experience with exercise and just holistic health, which is a little bit of exercise. And it's it's, it's smiling and it, it's, you know, pinching your wife's butt or, you know, whatever right, it, that is right. on the side and eating food that makes you feel good. And it's beautiful, sunny days and, you know, cool ocean breezes or whatever it is for you. It's cultivating that constant state of optimal experience and, and, and enjoyment. So then our body, our, our hormones, you know, we're, we're peaceful. We're, you know, we, we, are not listening to Fox news or CNN. That shit is just kind of banned. Let's get that out of our life if you can. Right. And so you're starting to remove and create, just cultivate this state of, of optimal health to not overuse that term. I think that's what we're trying. So do you have, you don't have a solution, I would think. Yeah. Or maybe that's the next book, the exercise. No, solution. no. I mean, it, it, you know, I, I, uh, all I can say is yes to all of the above, you know, like that's kind of the, the stuff that you're trying to find. Like you, you, uh, it, it, and it's interesting because I've found kind of a similar deal where in the past I would go sequester myself in either the garage or a, a gym and, and work out. But the, my, my ability to do jits is that time. Yeah. And then if I'm going to do some strength work or some conditioning work, I have to figure out a way where the family is involved. And so we'll all go to the park and there's a pull-up bar and some dip bars and I'll maybe bring like a 40 pound vest. And so I'll chase the girls around, go do a set of pull-ups, set of dips, um, chase them around a little bit. 
And, uh, you know, for a 45 year old dude, like I'm, I'm in pretty good shape and, and I'm able to motor along with jujitsu, but it becomes a lot of, uh, uh, multitasking, but not multitasking in that crazy, like I've got two phones in my ears and I'm typing and I've got a, uh, you know, a chicken that I'm cooking with my foot, stirring it in a pot, you know, it's, it's okay. I'm spending time with my family. I'm getting sun on my skin. I'm out yeah. in nature and I'm getting a little bit of exercise too. That's the the type of multitasking. And so it ends up ticking a lot of boxes and you end up being pretty, pretty time efficient with that. That's awesome. Now, it, before we let you go, let's just give what's a good overview day for the average person listening? What's the foundation that they can be built on based upon what you currently do, but what your research says, what Wired to Eat will tell us? Go. Oh, man. Uh, you know, once you've kind of figured out your carb level, then and, and uh, kind of what your your potential trigger foods are. I like somewhere between two to three meals a day, maybe a snack here and there. And again, this stuff, it just really depends. Like some of my cops and firefighters do really well with some intermittent fasting, sometimes not. So it, it gets hard to, to do any of that stuff. You know what I, I'll focus on is the wrapping up of the day, yes. because that I think is where folks kind of drop the ball. So we installed dimmer switches in our house. And we, we put in LED lights that are in the orange spectrum so that when you dial them down, it almost looks like a, a brothel, like it's kind of orangish, reddish. But but um, the, the blue wavelength of light tends to suppress melatonin production and tends to keep us awake and kind of in that, that fight or flight mode. So in the evenings, once the sun sets, we get up and we pull the dimmer switches on in the house. We have no... Uh, uh, you know, electronic media, maybe one day a week, we'll do like a family movie night, but we wind things down. All of us put on blue blockers. And yeah. so we look like complete nerds. Uh, luckily, you know, this will probably prevent my girls from being, you know, knocked up when they're 13 because they'll be <laughs> such huge nerds. Nobody will go but, uh, but we put on these blue blockers and I sit down and I read them stories for 30 minutes to an hour. And then they brush teeth and go potty. And then my wife and I hang out and spend a little bit of time together and wind down and go to bed. But that that go to bed process, I would say for me, is the most important thing that I do in my life for being ready to face the next day. Mornings can be really variable, particularly with kids. Like you don't know if somebody pooped in the middle of the night and they've got poo all the way from their earlobes to their toenails. Last Tuesday. And like, you know, it's just pandemonium then. So I've found the morning routine to be challenging, but the nighttime, the go to bed routine, I've been able to have a lot of consistency. And so I really wind down the light, wind down the, the stimulation and, and everything. And usually within about two hours after sunset, I'm in bed and I'm, I'm racked out. And then I tend to wake up early and I'm able to tackle that, that poo or, or whatever else I'm, I'm facing the next day. So the most benefit that I've found is actually taking care of my end of day process so that I'm well rested and ready to face the next day. I love it. Rob Wolf, you are, you are a gentleman and a scholar, my friend. Thank you. Thank you. you. You were similar to my wife. You have low standards. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it, man, it's such an honor, such a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much for spending the time with us. Everybody listening, you must go and get Rob's book, Wired to Eat, already a number one bestseller. Um, you can get it on Amazon.com. Definitely go to RobWolf.com. That's two Bs, R-O-B-B-W-O-L-F.com on Instagram at robwolf.com and the paleo solution podcast you must make that one of your uh, subscriptions you should listen to every episode before the end of the week and uh 
there we go. Rob, brother, thank you again. Hey, man, thank you. Huge honor being on the show and, and keep up all the great work. I just love seeing everything you're doing. So thank you. We're, we're, we're trying, brother, trying to help them all. Indeed. All right, I'll be in touch soon, Rob. Thanks, bro. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. There we go, everybody. Mr. Rob Wolf. I mean, what a what an awesome guy, right? Genius, brilliant, super intelligent, heart is in the right place, so passionate about what he's doing. He could have, you know, essentially cashed out and, you know, just kind of kept on doing what he was doing, as he said earlier, but he's really in that 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 growth phase, putting new information out there for you guys. Um, I love his work. I've read everything Rob has written, listened to all of his podcasts. Um, definitely an influential mind in, in my life and in what we do here at the Dolce Diet. So anytime Rob Wolf talks, we definitely we listen and pay attention, and it's nice to call him a, a friend. So thank you guys for tuning in and for listening and for your suggestions continue letting us know who you want to see now if you want to become a dolce diet certified coach go to dolcedietshop.com may 5th 6th and 7th here in las vegas at dolce fitness you can join a select group of individuals we cap these classes at 20 so it's very intimate you can hang out and be locked in a room essentially for three days with myself and members of our elite team teaching you everything you know need to know about nutrition dietetics motivational interviewing brand building monetization and setting yourself up for success in the health and fitness world we are proudly endorsed by the national strength and conditioning Association, the National Academy of Sports Medicine, and the American Fitness and Athletics Association as a continuing education provider. If you want to get Dolce Diet certified, now is the time, May 5th, 6th, and 7th in Las Vegas, dolcedietshop.com. Guys and girls, I appreciate each and every one of you. Thank you so much for being on this journey with us. I am committed to continuing to bring you the brightest minds with the most easy to understand, with the easiest to understand usable immediate tips to help transform your life. Every episode, we want to take your life to a whole new level. So make sure you have subscribed. Please leave comments below. Everybody who's listening, just give a, a comment. Good show, bad show, whatever. You know, go TED yourself. <laughs> Those longtime remembers know. Shoot us some comments on the iTunes page, trying to get a little bump there. We get massive downloads, uh, but that's through our app and also through our Stitcher account, which is great. Trying to get a little iTunes love and you guys are the audience to push that forward. Let us know in the comment section of who you want to hear come on next or give me a list of your top three or top five um, personalities that you would love to hear on this show. Can be anybody from from Hollywood, from professional sports, coaching, um, I don't know, people inside the Dolce uh, company. Let me know. And I appreciate you guys. Remember, don't count calories, make calories count. Boom!